Welcome to the Princeton Foreign Policy Podcast, a show run by Princeton undergraduates to discuss trends in foreign affairs. We're very pleased to invite this week's guest, Dr. Victor Cha, here to discuss recent developments in North Korea and the opportunities and challenges ahead for the Biden team. Dr. Victor Cha serves as the Senior Vice President and Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and as Professor and Vice Dean for Faculty and Graduate Affairs at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. He left the White House in 2007 after serving since 2004 as Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. At the White House, he was responsible primarily for Japan, the Korean Peninsula, Australia and New Zealand, and Pacific Island Nation Affairs. Dr. Cha was also the Deputy Head of Delegation for the United States at the Six-Party Talks in Beijing and received two outstanding service commendations during his tenure at the NSC. He's the author of numerous books and articles on North Korea and East Asian security more broadly. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Cha. Now, in the very beginning of the past two U.S. administrations, North Korea has tried to provoke the U.S. by launching missiles. What should be the Biden administration's first step when what seems to be the inevitable happens? Well, the first step for first, thanks for having me on this um, on this program. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, um, the, every administration, the first thing that they do is a policy review. They have to evaluate you know, what was done over the past four years. Um, um, what's the positive lessons that can be learned from that? What are the negative lessons that can be learned from that? And then um, start to chart out what their ultimate objective is in terms of policy, and then what are the immediate steps they need to take um, <clears throat> to achieve those objectives. Um, and so I think in this case, you know, they, I think they're very well aware that there has been a pattern in North Korean behavior with regard to new administrations of some sort of provocation. Um, so they have to think about, they have to think about that. Um, they have to think about, um, so-called CVID, complete verifiable and irreversible denuclearization, um, if that's the objective that they're after. <clears throat> and then, you know, the I would say, even though there are patterns in North Korean behavior, there's some things that are different this time, not least of which is the domestic situation, um, because there have been a confluence of factors that have developed over the past year and a half that I would argue puts North Korea in a different domestic situation than they've been in in past transitions, which, which potentially could affect their external behavior. Um, so with, with all that, I mean, the thing about North Korea is, you know, we don't have an embassy, we don't have normal diplomatic relations. Um, there is a way to communicate through New York where the North Koreans do have an office, uh, part of their mission to the UN. Um, but in many ways, it's it's a black box, and um, the, every administration has to try to understand what's happening inside that black box, and um, make assumptions, and then try to act on those assumptions about North Korean behavior. I guess to follow up on that, um, a criticism that's been lodged against past uh, policy reviews, which to my understanding, there's a policy review currently ongoing in the Biden administration, is that they don't often look for bold reconsiderations of ideas because a lot of people are conducting them or the same people who have been implementing these policies previously. 
So I'm curious, uh, what do you think is like the like the outcome of this? Do you expect some bold reconsiderations of North Korea policy, or just an update on uh, strategic patience? So uh, you know, I think that there um, we did see bold. So I would say, if we look over the past 25 years of negotiations with North Korea, um, there are similarities. Um, Every, from the agreed framework of 1994 to the Trump-Singapore summit um, of, of, of 2018. There are, there are differences, of course, in terms of how these were done and, and the theatrics attached to them. But if you look at the very core of all of the discussions or the diplomatic pitch or whatever you want to call it that's given to North Korea, it's remarkably the same, which is um, you give up your nuclear weapons um, and we will give you um, energy and economic assistance, uh, um, membership in the international community, um, political normalization of relations with Japan and with the United States, uh, and some sort of peace regime ending the Korean War. Right. Um, so it's been it's packaged been packaged in different ways. But that's sort of the core quid pro quo um, of, um, of the deals with North Korea. And there have been things um, that have been not included in that, that many people have complained about. For example, human rights is something that has not been, you know, demanding an improvement in human rights has not been included. It's entirely been about nuclear weapons. Ballistic missiles have not really been a part of that negotiation. It's been entirely about, um, about nuclear weapons. So I think there's the, 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 the core deal is, is, is pretty similar, even though the packaging, whether it's six party talks or summitry or expert working level bilateral talks, those have, those have been um, different. Doing something dramatic, um, you know, some people would argue what Trump did was pretty dramatic, meeting with the North Korean leadership and trying to get a deal at the top which, you know, in a, it, it makes sense in that North Korea, only one person is going to make a decision about giving up the nuclear weapons, and it's Kim Jong-un, so you might as well talk to him. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the Biden administration is going to, um, it's, it's not going to do something dramatic on North Korea. Um, it's very difficult, um, given all that's been tried, uh, to do something really dramatic. I mean, if you think about it, we've had one nuclear deal with Iran, right? We've had three nuclear deals with North Korea, four if you include Trump, four nuclear deals with North Korea, all of which have failed. So it's kind of hard to do something really, really um, dramatic um, because when, you, you know, when you're in government and you think about doing something dramatic, you're also taking on a lot of risk, right? risk in terms of the failure of that approach, political risk in terms of um, opposition from, in this case, the Republicans, risk with your allies, uh, if they don't like the dramatic step that you're taking, uh, risks with China and Russia. So, um, and with a case like North Korea, where there's such a failed record of diplomacy, usually you don't take risks if you're the government, unless you think the return is gonna be pretty pretty good and pretty good and a pretty good chance it's going to succeed. Um, you don't take risks when four past agreements have failed 
Um, it's very political. It's intensely political. Um, your allies might not like it. Um, uh, th then it's harder to take sort of big dramatic uh, policies. One of the bigger risks of symmetry, I think, is that the U.S. president meets with the North Korean leader, they talk, they shake hands, and then in the end, nothing productive happens, and you've legitimized Kim Jong-un by showing him with the president. Yeah. How, how can yeah. the Biden administration build trust with North Korea to make further progress possible without appearing to legitimize Kim Jong-un in the eyes of his countrymen and in the eyes of the world? So I think there, I mean, what you described certainly is what people would say Trump did, gave him a lot of legitimacy, because you have to remember, it wasn't just the U.S. president that met with him three times, because the U.S. president met with him, um, the Chinese leader who had not met with Kim Jong-un prior to the summit in Singapore, you know, ended up having five meetings with him. Um, um, he met with the prime minister of Singapore. He met with the president of Vietnam. I mean, he, he was on TV everywhere around the world. I mean, totally legitimized him. So that's not, a, and, and nothing to show for it. So that's not a good thing. Having said that, the fact that that um, taboo has been broken, um, um, I think makes it easier for the Biden administration to say, hey, look, we're open in principle to a meeting of the leaders, but only after there's real progress made where the two leaders can come in and shake hands on an agreement, not before that. Um, Saying that in the past would have been really taboo, uh, but you know now because Trump has gone so far, it's uh, possible for um, people to say that and to really mean it, like that being one of the things that they would commit to if, if, uh, if the experts could work out a real deal. The problem with the Trump summit diplomacy was that there was no follow-up follow -up afterwards. You know, there was big statements uh, but there was no follow-up, not because the U.S. wasn't trying, because the U.S. was trying, is that the North Koreans weren't following through. You've uh, written and spoke about on your podcast, The Impossible State, about a potential interim freeze deal uh, where the U.S. could offer sanctions relief to North Korea, but stop short of uh, CVID. Uh, what do you think the prospect for this is? Um, and how is it different from China's previous proposals, like freeze for freeze? So... Uh, well, first, it would be, as you described it, it would be an interim for interim step. It would not be the final step. Um, it would be in, the interim and the first step towards the ultimate goal of denuclearization. Um, you can people can call it freeze for freeze. People may not like calling it freeze for freeze because it's a Chinese term. Practically speaking, if you're the if you're the person that gets stuck with this portfolio, the first thing you want to do is stop the growth of the program because it has not been stopped for the last four years. It has been growing. It's under sanctions pressure, but it's just been growing and growing, whether it's the um, launch technology, accuracy of targeting fissile material, uh, feedstock uh, for, uh, for fissile material. Um, you know, it, the program has just been growing and we've been documenting that, right? It's, and so the first thing you want to do if you get stuck with this portfolio is you let, you're like, I gotta stop this somehow, right? I can't, maybe I can't denuclearize right away, but I've gotta stop the growth of the program because we don't want them to have 80 or 90 nuclear warheads by the time President Biden's first term in office is, is finished. Because the more they have, the more they can potentially lose or sell or other sorts of things. So, and so that's where the freeze I think is important, but the freeze isn't a, 
an end goal in and of itself. It is the first step towards getting to um, you know the other steps of the uh, of a declaration, denuclearization, test ban, all of these other things. So, so I think it's an important first step. Um, I think it's somewhat achievable uh, because uh, the North Koreans do need some assistance right now. Um, uh, but the, the real question will be not getting to the freeze, but what you do beyond the freeze um, <coughs> to move to move forward. Speaking of uh, the sanctions issue, um, a major focus of that over the past several years and over many administrations has been uh, China and working with China potentially on sanctions, uh, working against China, where China seems to be enabling uh, North Korea uh, to engage in illicit trade. And so I'm curious how you think the Biden administration will balance uh, trying to work with China on some of these issues and whether you think it, this, this area of North Korea policy will be a place where you'll see more cooperation or more adversarial posture between the two countries. Well, I mean, the Biden administration has already said that their template for US-China relations is strategic competition. Um, people have said in the past that may be the case, but there's one place where the US and China can work together and that's on, on the Korean Peninsula because Neither of them wants to see a, a nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula. I think to some extent that's true, but I think the amount of cooperation is limited um, because North Korea, I mean, China and the United States really don't share the same interests on the Korean Peninsula. Um, we would like to see a united and free Korean Peninsula and China would not. We'd like to see no nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula and China I think um, is agnostic on that question. Um, at best, at best agnostic on that question. Um, <clears throat> and so that doesn't make for a good basis uh, for cooperation. Um, you know, China has cooperated on sanctions before, um, but it's always been limited and it's like pulling teeth. It's really difficult to get them to agree to sanctions cooperation because they will put enough pressure on North Korea to get them to come to the negotiating table. And then once they're at the negotiating table, they buck pass to the United States and say, okay, now you solve this problem. At the same time, because they've been able to get North Korea to the negotiating table, they stop putting the sanctions on. They start to soften the sanctions as a reward to North Korea for coming back to the table. So it's really not a good position for the United States. All the, all the pressure is on us to negotiate. Meanwhile, China is not sanctioning North Korea. They are backfilling uh, North Korea. So that's a very difficult position to be in. So I've always believed that cooperation with China is possible, but it's, it's, in, it's in small increments. It's tactical. It's not strategic. Um, um, uh, and, and it doesn't necessarily put the United States in a, in a better position. Now, having said that, the issue right now isn't sanctioned by China because um, whether China is sanctioning or not sanctioning North Korea, it really doesn't matter because COVID is basically self-sanctioning North Korea, right? North Korea has sealed its border now for over a year with China. And so that is, uh, that is a level of sanctioning that, um, John Bolton would have loved to see, right? It's uh, because it's all self-imposed sanctioning by the North Korean regime. 
Yeah, to avoid cases of COVID, North Korea has entirely locked down its borders and the economy is suffering as a result. Millions of poor citizens are growing poorer and hungrier. What is more likely, that Kim will pin the blame on foreigners to justify an internal crackdown, which you've written about in the Washington Post, or that he'll appease the West in order to alleviate sanctions? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the... Um, the COVID situation really is a unknown variable inside of North Korea. Um, it's clearly affected the economy, like contraction of the economy this past year. Um, we don't know how many cases there are of COVID in North Korea, um, but they don't have any capability to contain it once the virus is inside the country. They just have no ability um, to do that. They have, I think, thir 13, I mean, before, help from the outside world. They had one PCR machine in the entire country. Now I think they have 15, 13 or 15. Um, I mean, and, you know, and they have no public health infrastructure to speak of. So it'd be very hard for them if they were to, if they were to have this virus or if the virus has, could or has already entered, um, entered the country. Um, so I, the way I look at this is, again, we don't know but we do know what the pattern of behavior has been in in the past, which is they like to do provocations to test a new administration. Um, well, it was like, um, uh, I can't remember which, but I think it was like three weeks after Obama was inaugurated, five weeks after Trump was inaugurated or vice versa, one or, one or the other. And so we should expect that, but if they don't do that, then to me, that's a sign that something is different and it could be the domestic situation, that the domestic situation has become so difficult or so distracting that, um, that it has affected their external behavior. So I, I, you know, again, so it's very difficult to make predictions about what North Korea can do. So what we try to do is um, understand what past patterns of behavior are, induce predictions from that. And if they don't do something, uh, then, then look to these other variables as possibly being relevant enough to have affected their behavior. Sure. How much is the famine of the 1990s instructive when predicting and thinking about North Korea's actions right now? Um, so I think it's important in one respect, which is, again, the, the ability of this regime to stay afloat, um, the ability of the North Korean people to weather, you know, about the worst possible material shortages that you can imagine um, to be able to weather all those things. I think that's, you know, that's something we learned from the famine. Um, but because of the famine, you know, we've had the growth of markets inside of North Korea and, and, um, and, and you know, basic capital, you know, grassroots capitalist behavior, market behavior. Um, and what we don't know is how much the pressures on the economy by COVID are affecting markets and market behavior and how much the government is intervening in the markets uh, basically to help themselves in this difficult economic crisis. Um, that's a, I think that's the biggest question with regard to COVID. It's really not how many people get infected or how many people die because if it does enter the country a lot of people will get infected a lot of people will die and the north korean government will probably not release a lot of information about it but how it 
causes the government to act um, towards the markets? To me, that's, that's the big question. Another really important area of US policy on the Korean Peninsula is coordinating between our allies, South Korea and Japan. Uh, you've noted, and it's been widely noted, that South Korea and Japan have seen a major deterioration in their relationship uh, over the past several years. Uh, you said in your podcast that um, things are so bad, it doesn't seem like it can get any worse, and we're almost waiting for another North Korean provocation uh, to bring these countries back together. I'm curious, um, Secretary of State Blinken, during his time as Deputy Secretary of State, was known for his efforts at the vice ministerial level to bring these countries together in a trilateral format. Do you think that there are proactive things that the Biden administration can do to bring South Korea and Japan together on this issue? Um, so I think first, uh, you're right that Tony Blinken has had past experience with this as deputy secretary. Um, and so that's important because I think it shows that he's internalized how important relations between Korea and Japan are for the United States right, in terms of trilateral uh, coordination. Um, and and um, uh, Wendy Sherman knows that as well, right? The, the new deputy secretary of state, she knows this um, um, as well. And so, um, you know, I expect that they will continue to do that. Um, it's not the US role to try to solve the court cases or the historical disputes between Japan and Korea. That's, it's just very difficult to do that. Um, but it is important to have both of the countries, both of the allies understand that improvement in their bilateral relations is important for each of their alliances with the United States. Um, and that while history certainly matters, uh, there are a lot of things that are happening in the region in case anybody's been paying attention that um, require the three allies to cooperate. You know, we've talked about one of them, North Korea, but the other of course is the rise of China, um, democratic erosion in Burma, right? There are many things that are happening now that matter for these three countries and they need to work together. And then outside of the region, um, these three countries, either in the context of their alliances with the United States or trilaterally, provide a lot of public goods um, to the international community. And so it's important for these uh, countries to work together. I mean, I think that's sort of the pitch. It's not going to be here, let me tell you who's right in this court case. That's not the United States role, but it's really to step back and focus on, you know, what are the real, focus on sort of what are the pragmatic, realistic things we need to cooperate on uh, in an expeditious fashion, um, um, even though you know, there are you know, historical grievances that still remain unresolved between the two, two of you, two, the two allies. Another pragmatic, realistic thing in your words that the US can try to work on is human rights in North Korea, which wasn't entirely that much of a Trump administration focus, but could certainly be under the Biden administration. Um, can the US actually take steps to improve human rights in North Korea? What, what should those steps be? Um, so I think they can. I mean, you're right. The previous administration didn't spend any time on this issue at all. Um, Congress did pass a law, the North Korean Human Rights Act, by, in bipartisan fashion, uh, renewed over several administrations, Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, um, the first thing that the Biden administration could do was appoint a special envoy for human rights abuses in North Korea. This is a position mandated by the legislation, but it has been left vacant 
uh, for the past uh, past four years. Um, the uh, the other thing they can do is um, there is a uh, North Korea refugee resettlement program in the United States that was signed into law by uh, George W. Bush in his second term, um, which um, you know basically gives North Koreans the same possibility for the American experience that all other immigrant communities have had for centuries coming to the United States. Um, there really hasn't been hardly any coming lately. And part of that has to do with the immigration law changes, but you know, that's another, um, that's another area. Um, and um, there's a crossover between human rights and humanitarian issues. And here again, COVID and COVID support, COVID relief might be another area where there could be some um, humanitarian support um, for uh, for helping you know elderly vulnerable populations in North Korea with regard to this pandemic. Following up, I guess more on the U.S.-China threat on this, um, there are a lot of North Korean laborers who are still remain stranded in North Korea. Um, what can the U.S. do um, with China to make sure that conditions for these laborers in China and elsewhere in the world uh, improve? Um, so it's hard for I mean you know it's hard for the United States to to do everything in that respect. But I mean, there are a couple of things. I mean, first, you know, China should not be refouling these uh, North Korean migrants that come across the border um, as a member of the 1967 protocol on UN, uh, uh, on UN refugees. They should be allowing the UN High Commissioner for Refugees to have access to these individuals to determine whether they fit the definition of political refugees. Um, but China doesn't do that. They treat them as economic migrants, and they say, you know, basically they're illegal immigrants, so we just send them. We just send it back. Um, um, but many of them, if they get sent back, are going to be thrown into prison or tortured or thrown into a in, into a gulag. So, um, so I mean, obviously, the United States should put pressure on China to abide by the 67 protocol and allow the UNHCR access to these individuals. Um, but the, um, and I mean, the other thing, and it's hard to do this, is to also to try to personify the North Korean human rights abuses that are taking place. Um, these are largely, to the extent we know anything, we just know some statistics about you know, how many people may cross the border, how many of the Chinese may send back, but the North Koreans and the Chinese work very hard to ensure that there are no names or faces attached to uh, migrants that are sent back or vulnerable populations that are trafficked across the border. Um, they try to ensure that there's not a name or a face associated with this that can then be a cause Right. Um, and so it's it's a very brutal uh, but effective human rights strategy because it's hard to coalesce around a statistic. But if you have a name or a face uh, of representing the problem of trafficking or representing the problem of economic migrants or refoulement, then then that that becomes a policy on the policy side that becomes a much easier. Uh, way to address the problem. And so trying to learn more on that side, I think is important. Um, you know, there are other things supporting the, the UN office in South Korea now that is collecting documentation for North Korean uh, human rights abuses, 
um, trying to get the UN Security Council to talk again about North Korean human rights. It fell off the agenda uh, a couple of years ago, in part because we didn't have an envoy, a special envoy uh, for human rights abuses. And we didn't have, at that time, we didn't have a UN ambassador. Um, no, we, there was a transition, so we didn't have a UN ambassador. So, <clears throat> I mean, you know, so there are, it, it's a difficult issue, but there are things that the Biden administration could do um, that would uh, represent a vast improvement over what we've seen over the last four years. To transition a little bit, um, last month saw the Eighth Party Congress, uh, and there was some fiery rhetoric that we saw um, from Kim Jong-un at that summit. Uh, I'm curious how much you think that uh, the rhetoric from the Eighth Party Congress should be read as a message to the new Biden administration versus uh, domestic political pageantry. Um, so it's an Eighth Party Congress, so there is some domestic pageantry associated with it. Um, but I think it was a pretty stark and transparent statement of what North Korean intentions are. Um, and so in this case, they're not being a black box. They're not being opaque. They're being pretty clear about what they want to do. Um, and that is that they don't want to denuclearize. Uh, on the contrary, they want to expand and modernize their weapon systems. Um, and they even pro provided a list of the things that they want to do, um, all of which would represent uh, a modern nuclear weapons force, uh, you know, a state with a modern nuclear weapons force. So I thought it was a pretty clear statement of intentions. And so, and you know, that's what the Biden administration uh, has, to, has to deal with, has to confront. Um, and it certainly speaks to, if that's the direction North Korea wants to go in, it certainly speaks to uh, priority number one being to enhance US defense and, and extended nuclear deterrence capabilities with, with allies threatened by these, these um, North Korean capabilities, that is Japan and South Korea, you know, even other, even other countries. Um, so that's, you know, job number one. Um, but I think, you know, every administration is going to also look at what North Korea says and say, okay, that's what they say in their eighth party Congress. Let's sit down and talk to them and see what they have to say. Right. And so it wouldn't surprise me if the administration both um, took steps to strengthen deterrence but also said, sure, let's sit down with them, you know, in China, wherever, in Germany, in, in Sweden, somewhere, and let's talk to them and see what they have to say. Mm -hmm. And one of the discussion topics would probably be cyber warfare and the hacking going on from North Korea. That's a very topical subject, considering a story that, that came out this morning. How has North Korea's cyber warfare program developed since the Sony hack? Um, that's a good question, and we actually have a group of students that are working on that at Georgetown, because um, uh, we wrote one of the reports at the very beginning of all this. It actually We actually started the report before the Sony cyber hack occurred. Um, um, but, uh, you know, the, the cyber attacks continue. Uh, I don't know the story that you're referencing from this morning. What happened? There was news that the North had obtained $300 million through hacking that it used to fund its nuclear and ballistic missiles program. Yeah, yeah, so that's interesting. I think, so um, when they first did the Sony cyber hack, I think um, North Korea really wasn't on the radar screen of cyber security experts in terms of being a threat. Uh, you know, obviously it was China, Russia and others, but not so much North Korea. 
but they demonstrated the capability with the Sony hack that surprised many people. Um, and so the concern was that they would use it as a, a weapon um, or as a terrorist uh, or as a terrorist device. The um, our, our report that we did at CSIS um, noted that the um, we looked at tried to understand the organizational structure behind their cyber activities. And it turns out that like two of the departments from which we think the cyber activities emerged were also the two departments historically that have carried out North Korean terrorist attacks. So we were quite worried that that was going to be the case. But like the example you just described there, <clears throat> um, so it, it doesn't seem like they've been going after infrastructure systems or trying to shut down like water filter systems or fail-safe mechanisms on civilian nuclear reactors around the world to cause a meltdown. They seem to be stealing money, right? Um, they seem to be using it as a tool to rob people and companies and countries, um, which is not good, obviously, but um, it's, it's different from what people assess their initial intentions were with that ca this capability. Now, this is not to say that in the future, they would not use it for that purpose. Um, that's something more that does more damage and destruction rather than stealing money. Um, but um, it, it seems they seem to use it more for that purpose these days. Running up on time, so I want to ask you one uh, more question. In your book, uh, The Impossible State, you mentioned how North Korean elites watched allies like Hosni Mubarak in Egypt and other people who engage with them in the Middle East dictators fall uh, to popular revolutions. Uh, I'm curious how um, you think North Korea has seen uh, the return of authoritarianism to the Middle East and also democratic backsliding across the world. Oh, I'm sure they see that in a positive way. Um, I mean, I'm sure they see it in a positive way. At the same time, um, you know, North Korea and North Koreans really think of themselves as unique. They think they are a very unique people um, in, in this world. And uh, the fact that they have survived while the Soviet Union and all of North Korea's friends, East Germany and all of North Korea's friends, Cold War friends have all left, have all passed away, they're still there. Um, they think that is testament, not just to their toughness, but to the fact that they are a unique, unique race. I mean, it's very ethnic and racial. It's not just, it's not just um, um, about the state. And, and so in that sense, I think they believe that they will continue to survive as the impossible state, um, uh, as, long as, they, um, as long as they keep faith with the leadership and they follow the, they follow the direction of the, of the leader. Um, it's really, I mean, it really is an impossible state in that sense because everybody else around them, like them, has has, has collapsed, and yet they've managed to manage to survive. That's a grim note to end on, but an important <laughs> one. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure, it's my pleasure.